from Utah Public Radio. This is Undisciplined's Science News Roundup. On today's program, we're going to ask an amateur astronomer about pig brains. We'll talk to an environmental epigeneticist about black holes, and we'll chat with a podcasting paleontologist about sugar labels. And if none of that seems to make sense, well, you've got the idea. It's the April Science News Roundup on Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Once a month on this program, we gather together a motley group of scientists and science enthusiasts to talk about some of the biggest stories in science research and exploration. And in true undisciplined fashion, we do this with a panel of people from vastly different academic backgrounds. The result of these discussions are often insights you might not get if, for instance, you talk to a biologist about biology or a chemist about chemistry or a sociologist about sociology. But our philosophy on this show is simple. Bring a bunch of really smart people together, give them a few cool things to talk about, and let human nature take it from there. Joining us on the line from Utah State University in Logan, Utah, where she studies reproductive biology, toxicology, environmental exposures, and epigenetic influence is Morella Meyerfica, who last joined us in December to talk about a mouse her team created that can metabolize niacin like humans do. Morella, welcome back to Undisciplined. Thanks for having me. Joining us in studio today and making her second appearance on the Roundup is Sheena McFarland, a communications professional and former journalist with a degree in biology teaching and an ardent interest in astronomy. Sheena, thanks for being with us today. So excited to be here. Thanks for the invite. And with us for the first time, and I certainly hope not for the last, is Ryan Haupt, a paleontologist and podcaster and one of the hosts of a super cool show called Science Sort Of, which you can find wherever you get your podcast. Ryan, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So we've been doing the roundup for four months now, and every month we start by talking about space. And every month that makes sense because there's always plenty of cool space news to talk about. But nothing like this month. Because this month, my friends, gave us the world's first photograph of a black hole. And that is no small feat. In fact, for a long time, nobody could figure out how to do this. And most people who knew about these things had concluded that it was pretty much crazy to even try. Friends, you have all seen the image. Did it boggle your mind? Yeah, I was absolutely blown away. I was in Washington, D.C. when that news came out, and I remember walking down my hallway, and they had put out the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal in front of people's doors, and there was the same amazing image of this black hole. And I thought that was so incredible to see such amazing newspapers featuring science, and it was such a hopeful moment for me to see that we still care and have the curiosity about something like taking a photo of a black hole, something that any of us who have any interest in astronomy never thought we would see. And that was such an amazing moment to witness. I, I completely agree. There's something about seeing a picture of something that's so incredible that brings it so much closer to everyone's heart and and consciousness than just a scientific paper or a number of columns. Even if the scientific value is comparable, there's nothing that speaks louder than a picture. And especially to the whole population, this was something that fascinated everyone. One thing that I personally as a scientist found so fascinating is that it was truly a global effort. And I think this is what science has to be nowadays. We cannot just do our little thing somewhere and hope to find 
big news anymore. And this would have been completely impossible if it wasn't for people all over the world working, working together. And this made me really hopeful. Black holes, they're almost a science fiction concept. Like, it's hard to really grapple with the fact that these are real objects that exist in our, in our galaxy and in our universe. And so to be able to put some photons on that and take something that you can barely conceptualize in your mind, let alone think about the image of what it actually looks like, and now we have you know, actual data showing us an image of one, makes what seems like a really heady, out there, fantastical concept, and it makes it so much more concrete and easy to discuss and tell people about and explain why these things are so cool and so worth studying. The story of how this picture came to exist is just amazing. To put this into context, the Hubble Space Telescope can distinguish objects only about as small as 50,000 micro arc seconds. And the black hole we saw in this photo was less than one one thousandth of that size. Making this photo happen took a lot of cooperation. Morella, you mentioned this earlier the idea that we can work across the globe to make this happen, is that just completely inspiring too, in addition to the fact that we just saw a black hole? Yes, just the fact that people worked all over and they planned something that was kind of, I think most people doubted that it would ever happen because, as you said, the resolution of all the individual telescopes is way below what what was necessary to make this happen. And so just to think about that researchers all over the globe were able to coordinate a study that had to simultaneously record data at the South Pole, in Europe, in South America, in North America. And it's fascinating that it works. But I really think it's a powerful message that this is possible. Can you guys think about like how this would work in your own disciplines, like the idea of coordinating in that way? Ryan, do, do paleontologists ever think in this way? Like, like, let's all do something at the same time. Is there a translatable idea there? Unfortunately, the history of Western paleontology in particular has a lot of instances of the exact opposite happening, where people were, instead of being open and collaborative, actually quite standoffish to the point of there being actual violence. There's a period in the history of American paleontology in the 1860s and 70s called the Bone Wars, where two paleontologists had a feud that even included exploding each other's trains full of fossils. So yeah, paleontologists unfortunately haven't been the best exemplars of international or broad-scale scientific collaboration. I think it's much better now, obviously, than, <laughs> than in the 1860s. But this is certainly an inspiring moment. And one of the things as a paleontologist that some of my colleagues were pointing out about this image is the black hole that we imaged, M87, is about 55 million light years away from Earth, which means that if you were at where the black hole is and observing Earth, you would be observing Earth only about 10 million years after the extinction of the non-avian dinosaurs, and you would be witnessing a period in Earth history called the Paleo-Eocene Thermal Maximum, which is one of the hottest periods on record, at least in recent Earth history, and something that a lot of my colleagues study as a direct analog for the types of climate change we might be looking to see in our not-too-distant future. So I thought that was a really cool perspective to take on it as a deep-time spin on what the world was like when the light from this image that we're all fascinated by was being generated. 
that's a really hard thing to follow up because that is just like blowing my mind right now because that's a fantastic <laughs> perspective. Um, one thing I did want to point out is that I think space often does require international cooperation and has ever since the International Space Station has gone up. Of course, we had the Cold War and the race to space. But since that time, we've worked well with Russia. Even during the Crimea crisis, we've gotten astronauts up into the um, International Space Station. But I also wanted to give a shout out to Katie Booman. So Katie Booman was able to put together the algorithm that allowed the ability to stitch together all of these different images to create this composite image of this black hole, which was pretty incredible. That was her doctoral thesis work. I can't wait to see what she does um, as she continues to progress through that career. She just launched to international science superstardom, 29 years old. Right, absolutely. And the the inspiration that gives to young girls and women who are aspiring in science, which is often an unforgiving field for women, I think is so great to see someone like her be able to just absolutely rock it like she did. Yeah, I love that perspective too. I was so happy to see it. But I have to say, in the news coverage, I sometimes felt she was not respected as much as she probably would have been if it would have been a more established male researcher. And this might be a little biased, but I thought, you know, this is not Katie around the corner. This is Dr. Katie now. It was her doctoral thesis, but I thought it was a good example that women are just as powerful in science as men are and that they have to be respected the same way. I think one of the issues, and it's something that I appreciated about the story, was that we saw a lot of images of her getting emotional over this discovery. Mm -hmm. And like, that's a very normal reaction to what is a really amazing discovery. But I think so often the way that science gets reported is we don't actually let scientists show their emotions about their discoveries. We're expected to be very clinical when we're describing our science. And so the fact that there was such a clear level of excitement and pride and awe in the way that she was represented, I think maybe while I thought it was really positive and endearing, I think if interpreted in the worst possible sense, you could see it as a less professional way of representing herself. But I think that's society's problem, not her problem. I completely agree. And I think we, we have to overcome that because science is exciting. And we are forced to keep all the excitement and thrill out of our reports, which makes them often kind of dry. And they have to be factual. But, you know, I think as scientists, one of our biggest goals should always be to make science available for everyone and make it understandable and exciting for everyone. And we are so trained to be factual that oftentimes we don't kind of project our excitement and fascination. The important thing is why do people care? And they care not rationally. People care with emotions and we have to bring more of emotions in the way we present our factual data. Sheena, you said you were in Washington, D.C. when this happened. It's the exact place I wanted to because as soon as I saw this photo, my impulse was I wanted to be in one of my favorite places in the entire world, which is right at the foot of the Einstein statue that is right off the National Mall. Because this photo acts as confirmation of Einstein's theory of general relativity, which is a 114-year-old theory. And I just love the idea that something that was conceptualized so long ago is not only still with us, but because of the way science works, still being proven. Absolutely. And I think that is one of the joys of science. And I think that in today's political climate where we've become so anti-intellectual, I think that's what moved me so much to see this on the front pages of all of those newspapers to say, hey, science still matters. Facts still matter. And the curiosity that we as humans have about the world and the universe around us is an important factor of our existence. Okay, let's stay in space, but let's get a lot closer to Earth, a lot closer to Earth. 
For a long time, most scientists believed our moon was barren and completely bone dry. Uh, more recently, we've seen that there are signs of frozen water in regions that remain permanently in the shadows near the moon's poles. But now, thanks to a study from the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, it is apparent that there is water buried all over the moon. The moon is, well, not like a soaked sponge, but pretty much anywhere you look on the moon, you can find trace water. And how do we know this? We know this because a lunar orbiter has spotted extra water around the moon anytime the moon passes through streams of cosmic dust that can create meteor showers. So in other words, the meteors were stirring up dirt, which in turn stirred up the water particles in the dirt. Guys, this is a complete reimagining, at least for me, of what I think about when I think about the moon. You guys? For me, this is one of those stories where there's sometimes in science, and especially science reporting, there are trends that are inevitable, but reported as if they were a surprise. And so, like, we've always thought the moon was dry as a bone. So the fact that it's not is exciting, but that's the only direction that this research could have gone. Like, it wouldn't be a big deal if we confirmed that it was as dry as we thought it was. It's only exciting because it's a little wetter. And I think as we continue to study this, we will probably keep finding small little sources of water. So I think it's really exciting. I'm not super surprised. Uh, the moon, after all, is a piece of our own mantle, as, as far as we can tell, that has, was ejected during a, a giant impact event early in Earth's formation. And our mantle is, you know, also a source of some water. So it doesn't totally surprise me. I guess it's surprising that maybe it's still there four billion years later and so readily accessible on the surface. But really cool study. I wasn't necessarily as surprised by this one. I agree with not being surprised, but I think the news actually had a little bit of an opposite effect for me because I think when people think, oh, there's water there, it seems more friendly. It seems more hospitable. And in fact, I was thinking you only find the water because it's being bombarded by things and being hit by things and there's no atmosphere to stop those things. But I'm thinking, I don't know if I really want to be up there. That seems a little scary to me. So I think it, it showed to me just how vulnerable that environment really is. And for a living creature like a human to stay up there is an incredibly vulnerable position to be in. I think it also drives home a little bit how important our healthy atmosphere is for our life. So just thinking about, you know, there is nothing protecting the surface of, of this moon. And so we should kind of also take it as an idea of how fortunate we are to have an atmosphere that protects us. I mean, we're also fortunate to have a moon that is soaking up all these asteroids that are micrometeorites okay. that would be hitting us and oh, hitting our atmosphere. Okay. Oh, yes. And, oh, yes. and there's not a lot of other planets in the solar systems that have um, moons that are as much of a, you know, a percentage of their planet's own mass as the Earth-Moon system is. So it's, we're kind of in a special place in the solar system in that regard. Sheena said that this makes the moon seem almost less inviting. For me, it had the opposite effect. I immediately went like, let's go. Let's, let's do this. There's water up there. And then I read it would take a half ton of soil. You would have to like basically squeeze 1,000 pounds of moon soil to get just a very small bottle of water. So there's still a long way to go before we're like harvesting H2O on the moon, I think. But you've got to set up some moon fracking. <laughs> oh I mean, I think, I think with stories like this, it's never going to be a source of water for the planet Earth. I think it's cheaper and more effective and probably more just to figure out how to give everyone clean water based on all the water we have on Earth. But knowing that there's water on the moon, I think just removes some of the barriers for permanent colonization and the certain types of missions you might be able to run in the future if you know you don't need to bring 100% of the water supply with you because water is very heavy. Let's talk 
about another barrier that once seemed impermeable. Let's talk a little bit about death. No, let's talk about life. No, let's talk about zombies. Let's talk about zombie (laughs) pigs. Scientists have restored cellular activity to the brains of pigs that have been dead for greater than four hours. This is this is huge. This completely reorients our existing beliefs in neuroscience. And guys, I got to tell you, this kind of messed me up. What did this do to you when you read about it? I was really blown away by this news. Um, I think the thought that brain death has always been the end, right? That's when you know that a person or an organism is no longer alive and that you could, after four hours, bring some of that activity back. Yeah, really kind of tripped me out and definitely went to the pig zombie place for a minute. But I thought it was also interesting in the liquid that they were soaking that brain in, they had actually put in inhibitors because they didn't want to cross that ethical line of actually reawakening that entire brain. And had they not had that in there, how much farther would that have gone, right? It's one thing to have some activity, but to not have your neurons firing is different. But could you get there? And would it be ethical to do so? Or are you reanimating something that isn't? Are we going into Frankenstein land? What's happening there? And where do our ethics play into saying this could be an incredible scientific discovery that could save people who've had an anoxic brain injury or who have suffered a massive stroke? But are we ever going to get there? Because ethically, we really can't play in that realm. Yeah, a question I had was why, why would you necessarily, is there something special about neurons and the way neurons work that this technique only would work on a brain? Like, why not try it with a different organ where their ethical implications aren't there and refine the technique? And that way you can maybe jump some of those ethical barriers on an organ that you're not as concerned with and then try it out on the brain. Uh, I agree. You could, you could do it with other organs, but the, the fascinating one is the brain because that's how we as a society, I think, define life from dead, right? So yeah. if if we have brain activity, we consider someone to be alive, even if other organs are failing and we, if we can supplement the function of the other organs externally. But we have never been able to supplement brain function so that, because that's how we determine if someone is dead or someone is alive. And in my mind, it always had been more this black and white thing, though either there is activity or there is no activity. But to think that you could bring activity back, it, it implies that you, you might declare someone to be dead when in reality you could just treat them and they might be able to be reanimated. At what degree, kind of, this is where the scary zombie part kicks in. So it's going to be very, very hard to follow up with research that is ethically appropriate or acceptable. Within the bounds of the ethical frameworks that guide what scientists do, where do you folks think that this research can be taken next? Marilla, you got some thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually thinking if you could use this technique to help people that are declared brain dead because the brain has been stuffed for oxygen for a certain amount of time, you might be able to save a lot of people that right now are deemed hopeless cases. So I think there is a lot of potential. If this process could be refined in a way that you can also get those complex neuronal activities to work again. So I think that's a great hope for emergency treatment. I didn't actually think about this in terms of zombies. Uh, Maybe I should have. But for me, I just thought about how much longer do the machines let us play around with this before they just turn the matrix off? Because (laughs) we're not supposed to be able to figure out how to do this. Yes, and I think the brain is a very sensitive issue. And I think the big ethical problems is not reviving 
take brain tissue, I think it's reviving any brain tissue. I think we are, we are not so scared of a zombie pig brain. And I think ethically, yeah, it's not something that I think is ethically acceptable to have a conscious being, even if it's a slice of a pig brain in, in a jar. But we, at the same time, like you said, we segregate our ethics enough that it's okay to kill a living pig for, for meat. I think it's where we have to kind of accept our human nature and to some degree. Let's continue talking about things we eat, but let's not talk about meat. Let's talk about sugar. A new study projects that new labels on food products could help us cut our sugar consumption. That would be a very good thing given all the health implications of all of the sugar that we consume. This could perhaps help prevent 350,000 cases of cardiovascular disease and nearly 600,000 cases of diabetes. The thing that really blew me away about this is that all we're really talking about is just putting more information into people's hands in a way that make them better capable of making the decisions that I think a lot of people want to make anyway. Simple information can fundamentally change the way we act. You guys thoughts on this? I was very happy to see that because I'm one of those crazy people that stand in the aisle and get out my reading classes so I can read the fine print on, on the labels that are on there. And often I'm shocked to find sugar in foods where I would never have expected it. So you buy hot dogs. Do you expect hot dogs to be full of sugar? Not necessarily, but if you don't actively look for that information, you don't find it. And I think that most people are not aware of the fact where they are consuming sugars. They think, okay, I just had some protein because I ate some meat product, when in reality there's a lot of sugar in there. So I think this is going to help increase awareness. And I think that's the most important thing that people will be able to be active consumers and conscientiously decide what they eat. Right. And I think that when um, consumers are purchasing things that they think are healthy, maybe like a jar of applesauce, they don't realize that there has been so much sugar added to that, which is actually totally unnecessary. My mom has made applesauce for my family for years, and it's just apples, and it's wonderful. It's much like when you order a salad and you think, oh, I'm being healthy, I'm ordering a salad, and you don't realize that the dressing has as many calories or as much sugar or as much fat as you think. And I also think that the sugar lobby has been really, really good at diverting the eating question away from what actually makes you unhealthy and that we have the fat-free label everywhere, whereas in fact, fat doesn't make you fat. It's sugar that makes you fat and sugar that affects your health in these long-term ways. And they've been able to get away from that by diverting the attention with the very simple words fat-free, people immediately think healthy. And I think the simpler we can make the sugar added label large and very clear to consumers, the better that they're going to be able to make an informed decision. And I was surprised this study didn't also look at um, dental health, because I feel like this would also help with um, teeth. You know, sugar is also a leading factor in tooth decay and negative outcomes associated with teeth as we age. You know, you don't you only get one set of adult teeth as the type of mammal that we are. So if we can Mm -hmm. help with that, too, I think that would also be really good. In the short time that we have left today, I'd love it if each of you could talk about a study or a story that you saw in the news uh, over the last month that you think needs a little bit more attention. Sheena, you want to start? Absolutely. So I was absolutely fascinated and captivated by this 40,000-year-old foal that was discovered in Siberia. So so cool. It absolutely was um, so cool. And it makes me think of how cold Siberia is to 40,000 years preserve perfectly this three-month-old foal to the point where it has liquid blood and liquid urine in it. And what 
can we find out from that? And what possibilities does that open up for what the environment actually was like at that time? Morella, was there something that was in the news this uh, month that you think people should have been paying better attention to in the world of science? It's a little closer to my work of research. I found a study where uh, researchers were able to craft some prepubertal testes of a rhesus monkey onto a pubertal and later on uh, developing rhesus macaque back. It was an autologous craft and the medical implications is huge because there are a lot of young kids that are diagnosed with cancer. They have to undergo all those treatments with radiation and genotoxic damaging medication, but a lot of them, they will or can be healed, but they will never be able to have kids because the treatment damages their reproductive organs. And now people were able to show in a primate for the first time that you can take out some tissue cryoprocess serve it. So in theory, you could have a little boy that has to undergo cancer treatment. They could take out a little bit of his testicular tissue, store it for a point when he has been cured and then re-implant it and he would be probably able to have kids of his own, which I think is a great prospect. And Ryan, what did you find this month that you'd like to share? So I'm kind of a language nerd in addition to being a nerd about many other things. And I saw a study, apparently humans could not pronounce the letters F and V sounds before farming developed. So the study looked at the fact that when agriculture developed, we started chewing our food in a different kind of way. And that changed the position of our upper and lower incisors and the way that they're aligned in the jaw, which actually made it easier to pronounce some of the sounds needed to make the F and V sounds with our labiodental function. So I just thought, how cool is it that like the development of agriculture led to a subsequent development in linguistics and the way we we're able to speak to each other? My mind is totally blown by all of those stories. Guys, thank you. We're going to have to leave the discussion there. Sheena McFarland, thank you so much for joining us on Undisciplined today. It was an absolute pleasure. And Ryan Haupt, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really had a lot of fun. And Morella Meyer-Fika, thank you so much for coming on the show again. It was wonderful. Black you can listen to Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at So Undisciplined. We recorded today's show in the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. We got a little production help this month from Mia LaPlante. That's my kid. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.